Welcome to the Weekly Offload, a podcast that discusses serious rugby league topics with a dash of dark humour. Welcome to the Weekly Offload. So we have a very big guest in today, Hamish Adams-Cairns. How are you, Hamish? I'm very well, thank you. Good to be here. Uh, so I was saying off the podcast, Hamish, that I'm a big stickler for the schedule. So we might just let it run a little bit today, mate. So um, how, how's life? How's life in Queensland? How are you finding it? I can't complain. I've got an 18-month-old son. We've been up there for like two years. Yeah. Life my wife looked at me the other day as we were landing into the Sunshine Coast Airport. She's like, hey, our life is a joke. Which basically <laughs> sums up living on the Sunshine Coast. It's very easy. It's not stressful. I'm home by five. It's pretty sunny all the time. We live near the beach. Yeah, life, life's pretty good. I can't complain. Do you, Hamish, do you guys, is, there, is it an actual thing there is Queensland time? Do you live on Queensland time, mate, would you say? I don't know if I live <laughs> on Queensland time. I'm, I'm a stickler for timings, so I would say I'm the opposite of Queensland time. I'm, I'm early for stuff. Ah, uh, so you're pretty particular. I still wear a watch, yeah. Do they? <laughs> <laughs> you, you probably Hamish stands out. You probably stand out I'm there, the only mate. one there. I'm yeah. the only one there early. And you are saying, so Hamish, you are saying obviously up there, as we said, we don't want to offend anyone on this podcast, but you get very similar personalities and that things like that. That is true. I love living on the Sunshine Coast. Been very happy there for nearly three years. I miss a bit of diversity. I like going into a French restaurant and the waiters being French, not having like a strong Queensland accent. So when I come down to Sydney, even like the drive, even getting in an Uber in Sydney is kind of exciting for me because sometimes they're not Australian. Like, oh my gosh, someone from Pakistan, someone from Bulgaria. I'm like, all oh, this diversity is almost too much for me. So yeah, I, I miss that. I miss the sort of colour of life. Yeah, I could imagine, mate. You probably, as we said, you probably had uh, similar characters there. So it's kind of like being on The Sims, would it's you say? It's a little bit Sims-like. Yeah. Fun as a kid to play Sims. As an adult, you want less Sims in your life. Yeah, you start sort of wanting them to lose their job and get stuck in the pool, yeah, mate, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's good. You're enjoying it. So you're enjoying it there, mate, so yeah, far? Yeah, I am. I am. Yeah. It's been great. That's great. And um, we'll get on to it later, but obviously you have a big night mm. tonight. It's a massive night for yourself, but we don't want to give too much away on the weekly off day. We want to keep our fans uh, waiting. So today, obviously, mate, we're going to be talking about relationships with alcohol. <laughs> Let's start with yourself, mate. So what was your relationship with your alcohol, with alcohol throughout your life? So I was a normal drinker in the ISIS society. I wasn't the biggest pisshead in my circle of mates. I was sort of somewhere in the middle. I actually wasn't very good at drinking. So I was not someone that could ever down a pint. Most of it went over my front or over my shoulder <laughs> if no one was watching. I've never enjoyed drinking shots. Like, I don't understand why people drink shots. They're not fun for me. I think it's the worst gift that you can buy anyone. I've said, I'd, I'd rather you put $3 on my Opal card than buy me a shot for $3. It's just a bad drink. Um, but I guess I was, I was lucky because I wasn't good at drinking i threw up and i wasn't known for being a big drinker it made my experience of giving up alcohol quite easy a lot of people wait until they reach rock bottom right they look around mm. themselves and they go they're a bigger drink than me they're a bigger drink than me that person's what's called an alcoholic i'm not an alcoholic because i don't drink in the morning or whatever people mm. perceive as being an alcoholic is there's no real definition of it so because i sort of didn't give up or i didn't wait until my drinking became a problem Giving up has been easy for me and I am very aware of how lucky I am because giving up can be practically impossible for millions of other people. Have you ever, Hamish, I'm about to give myself away, but have you ever been at a party and uh, had a very strong liquor and poured a little bit out and then gone back to the party and said, oh, look, look how much I've drank before. Have you ever I done anything? Have, <laughs> I would say I have thrown more shots over my shoulder than down my throat. <laughs> So the next door neighbours are probably drunk yes. because of you, mate. Yeah, there's girls behind me with like wet patches on their backs. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you were saying about you don't understand shots. What about those people? Did you ever have anyone that wanted to do a tequila shot straight off the bat? Because I had a lot of friends that were that, like that. The only fun shot is the one that you light. But the mm. one that you light, you end up with like burn marks on your forehead or you burn your eyelashes or your eyebrows. <laughs> That's the only fun one because it's a bit of a novelty. But no, I just, they're just not for me. 
Yeah, that's fair enough, mate. Um, so uh, tell us your philosophy towards drinking now. How has that changed? I think a lot of us start drinking because we look around ourselves and we go, my parents do it, or my older siblings do it, or my friends do it, or I'm 14, I want to rebel, and smoking and drinking is the easiest thing to do. And none of us really know what alcohol is. Until a year and a half ago, when I started the podcast, I had no real idea what alcohol is. And now my job is to research what alcohol is and spend ages looking at the science and listen to other podcasts about it. And I think if we all knew what alcohol is and what it does to your body, it is a toxic poison. That is what alcohol is. But society says it's okay to drink. You know, as long as you're not an overdrinker, it's cool to drink. And the government is happy to market it and you see advertising everywhere and your favourite sporting team is probably sponsored by an alcoholic drink. So I kind of think that it's easy to drink when you're naive to the effects of alcohol. As soon as you start reading into it, and I don't know why this isn't taught in schools to 13, 14 year olds who are starting to think, maybe I want to drink because that's the age that we do. I think as soon as you know what's going on, at least you have the information to make like an intelligent decision. I've got, if you want to drink, I've got no issue with it. I've got, I'm not anti-drinkers, but I think everyone should at least know as much information as possible before committing to like, most of us start drinking at 13, 14 and drink until we die we should probably know a little bit more about what we're consuming for 60 to 80 years before we start and possibly get addicted to this incredibly addictive substance. Yeah, I loved your podcast, uh, the one on drugs, actually. <laughs> so you and Vic just speaking about how, as you said, it's normal in society to show someone drunk on TV or just having a few beers. You're kind of in a male, in the male society or um, stigma is you're like a hero, a lad in England as well. And then obviously with drugs, it's something that is, uh, you know, something very frowned upon. Mm. So I love that I've, I've found your... Uh, recount of your you taking drugs hilarious <laughs> when you're saying you just were not very good at obviously using a bong or anything like yeah, that um so I, I thought that was uh, absolutely hilarious when you're uh, chatting about that but i think it's a good point <laughs> you make that it's so normal to drink after work isn't it for most people it's not considered anything unusual if someone if it's similar to our clients if our client said oh, I had a wine after work, you wouldn't really think much about mm -hmm. it. And is that, I guess with the pot, we're going to talk about the podcast later, but is that one of the things you guys sort of want to convey um, just in terms of with drinking? As you said, you're not condemning drinking. You're just trying to give people information on the subject. I guess for, for me, the, the aim of the podcast is to help one more person reconsider their alcohol. So we're never going to achieve that goal. There's always going to be one more person to get. It's interesting you talk about drugs because alcohol is not considered a drug. So if you, if you did cocaine every day and then you say to me, you know what, I'm going to give up cocaine, the world would be like, good on you, mate, give mm. up cocaine. If you drink every day and you go, I'm going to, drink up, I'm going to give up drinking, half of your mates are like, what? Mm. Why? You're not even a big pisshead. Like, mm. what are we going to do on a Friday night? How are we going to celebrate your new job? Or how are we going to mm. commiserate your sporting team losing a final? So I think it, it's... In a way, it wouldn't be the worst thing if we started looking at alcohol as a drug. It has very similar effects to drugs. It is as, as addictive as drugs. It's causing as many issues to the healthcare system. It's breaking up more families. So it, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if we start looking at it as a drug because it is certainly as potent as, and as dangerous as every drug on the market. And how, how would you, mate, I guess, help with someone to limit their alcohol intake? Or do you think it's just having the conversations, as you said, about the, about alcohol. We always say the first place to start, and it doesn't really matter if you are what you would call an alcoholic or someone like me who just gave up because it's healthier not to drink, start with some professional help. Like that is the first step to take. People are very kind saying the podcast to help them get sober, but we don't know what we're talking about. We're two people that used to drink that now don't and talk about it regularly on a podcast. Professional help is the number one thing you need to do. In a way, alcoholism is the best thing to be addicted to in terms of the amount of, of available help that is free. Like, it's the good one. We spoke to a gambling expert recently. He was like, there just isn't the structures in place for someone struggling with a gambling addiction in the same way there is alcohol. But professional help. If anyone read, read some books, there are masses of quick-lit books or podcasts. Ours is okay. The Hooverman Ladder episode on alcohol is the greatest thing you can listen to. Anyone thinking about giving up alcohol doesn't know what alcohol is. That is your 
I always say, I recommend it before our own. It's probably counterintuitive, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he does a better job than us. So mm. that's the one. And then what I have found is you want to start looking at re- recalibrating your brain. So we're not giving up something. We're not giving up. We're not sacrificing our life. Look at the things that you're going to be taking on from giving up alcohol. How is your life going to improve? For me, the obvious one straight off the bat, money, the amount of money that you spend, not only on booze, but like on those late night kebabs and pizzas (laughs) and your taxis to and from every night out, all of that adds up. And time. You have no idea until you go sober, the amount of time you spend in pubs or bars or like Really, you stay after the night is no longer fun because you're drunk and why wouldn't you stay up till 4 a.m.? And with that time that you get back, what a lot of sober people tend to do is fill it with more interesting hobbies. Whether that is hanging out with your family, cool, but like for me, I got into ice baths, I'm training to be a breathwork instructor. Like You can fill your life with more interesting things than sitting in a pub or being hungover. And I think all of those things sort of become a domino effect. You know, if you wake up sober and go and do a run, then you are less likely to eat poorly. You guys are PTs, you know what talk about? Less likely mm-hmm. to eat poorly. You are less likely to drink poorly. You are less likely to make bad decisions. And all of that thing sort of ticks over. And for me, I, like I always say on the podcast, the least interesting thing about going sober is giving up alcohol. The only difference between me and someone that drinks is when you go to a pub, you order that drink. When I go to a pub, I order that drink. There's not that much interesting stuff to giving up booze in that way. What is interesting is the the way that you grow as a person. So now it's like, cool, can I go to a nightclub sober? Can I walk into a social situation where I know no one and speak to everyone without feeling self-conscious? Can I still be the life and soul of the party? Can I still dance on the dance floor? Can I do all of that stuff that I've never done before sober? And that, for me, is the interesting bit because I'm, I'm growing. I'm becoming more interesting. I'm becoming less insecure. Most people drink because of an insecurity. Most people go, I'm more fun when I drink. Or I'm better at chatting up boys or girls when I drink. Or like, I'm a better dancer when I drink. I'm less socially awkward when I drink. Like, really, if you narrow it down, most of us drink because of an insecurity. And when you give up, you face that insecurity face on. I didn't even know I had those insecurities. I'm like, okay, cool. So here are the things I probably need to work on. You do that work, and that is where sobriety gets interesting not just oh i don't drink beer anymore yeah i love your i just love your podcast in the way that it sort of has that british humor to it as well the sarcasm but i think it it doesn't make you feel as you said if you're not drinking uh because i've done a couple stints myself like three months six months it does you feel like you can feel like you're abnormal can't you but as you said it's just that easy if i go to a pub i can still go to the pub with my mates but i'm having this drink you're having that but it's more seen as like oh he matt's not drinking Mm. hamish isn't drinking at the moment so i think if we can normalize that it'll be great and i think your podcast just uh is really good at not making you feel like it'd be lame not to drink. I don't know. You got you and Vic are really good. Thank you. Um, by the way, I must make a little conf- uh, confession about your co-host. Mm-hmm. I kind of find her voice attractive. Yes. <laughs> I will tell her that and she will be over the moon. Yeah, I, I told Polly, so she's okay with it, by the way. And I know, obviously, Vic's happily married and yeah. so, so am I. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just, when I was listening to the thing, I just thought, obviously, I knew your your voice is sexy too, mate. Uh, don't, you don't, don't have to say that. Don't don't, I don't feel left out if you're more attracted <laughs> to her voice. That's fine. But, um, obviously, I'd heard your voice a fair bit. Yeah. But, yeah, I thought I'd, um, I thought I'd, like, throw that in there if I could, um, mate. But yeah, in terms of um, the podcast, uh, when you jumped on board or how did you get involved with the podcast? Yeah, so well? I, I met Vic within a week of moving to the Sunshine Coast. I met her for about three minutes at a coffee shop where there were 30 other people who were, who were having coffee. And within three minutes, we sort of connected. I went to a clown school in Paris. She was like, I went to clown school too. I've never met anyone that also went to clown school. Anyway, so we left and she added me on Facebook and she goes, I hope you don't find this is a bit weird, but I've had you on Facebook and I know what it's like to move somewhere new and know nobody. My house is empty for the next 10 days. I'll leave the keys out to all yours. So I don't even know this woman. Got to her house. It's a beautiful house with a swimming pool. And I looked at her book shelf and I could tell within 10 seconds that we would be friends. It was Louis Theroux. It was Adam Buxton. It was Russell Brand. It was like... British comedians, oh, Russell Brand, a little bit cancelled now, people that I, I thought will, be, will get on. And she started the podcast within about a month of me meeting her. She used to do it with a girl called Lucy, mm. who they've got a beautiful relationship. She met Lucy. Lucy was a stay-at-home alcoholic. Three days after meeting 
Vic, Lucy went sober. And they started the podcast within a month of that. So sort of the first year of it was in real time. Lucy, you know, two months sober, three months sober, four months sober. Um, and they're very, very similar. So they had instant chemistry. So even though I was drinking at the time, I listened to it and I was like, this is a brilliant podcast. Like, these mm. two are funny and they don't stigmatise and they don't blame the drinker, they blame alcohol society. Like it's, it's refreshing to hear people talk about sobriety comedically because it's a big a heavy topic, right? Like we sort of believe alcoholism is a heavy topic. Sobriety doesn't need to be. You can, you can be funny about sobriety because it is awkward and weird and <laughs> lots of weird situations. So they did it for like a year together. And then I got a text from Vic going, hey, can we meet up for a walk? <laughs> okay, so like I'm being broken up with. Yeah, <laughs> go for a walk with you. <laughs> what and, did you do in my house? <laughs> yeah, I was like, what do you want from me? So <laughs> we went for this walk and she said, look, hey, um, Lucy has sort of said everything she wants to say on the podcast. She doesn't want to present it anymore. Do you want to be sober? Or do you want to do you want to be the co-host? You have to go sober today. I was like, all right. So I, I got home, saw my wife. I was like, I'm sober now. Um, <laughs> I'll start recording the podcast next week. So it was sort of, it, in a way, like timing worked well for me. Like I just had a baby. We mm. lived on the Sunshine Coast, where we have no friends. There is no social life. You have a child. Like my biggest tip, and it's quite extreme. If you want to go sober, move somewhere where you have no friends and have a baby that doesn't sleep because then drinking is really not that attractive anymore. So I literally went, yeah, screw it, I'll, I'll do it. Like I, I've always wanted to present TV, radio, podcasts. This podcast was already a success. She said, do you want to do it? I was like, this is an open goal I can't miss. Yeah. Of course I'll do it. Yeah, and when she said, you're going to stop drinking today, I hope you didn't have the beer in your hand and just yeah, chuck it. Exactly. Chuck it away. Yeah, I'll do drunk, it. Drunk, oh, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, you're like, oh, I've had a few shots before I can. <laughs> Actually, you hate shots, mate, so it wouldn't be no, shots. I think I, had, I think, I think I was allowed to drink for one more day. Like I can remember planning, <laughs> planning my last drink. That's hilarious. That. Yeah. <laughs> you said to your partner, we're getting pissed tonight. Yeah, I think I had okay. some champagne. Finally, if Sarah was up, yeah, I had, I had champagne. Yeah. I thought that would be my, a good last drink. But yeah, then inevitably, anyone that goes sober, you think I've had my last drink. And then you go to a restaurant and you order a non-alcoholic beer and you get served an alcoholic one. You have half figure like, this is a really good one. And you're like, oh, hang on, it did cost me $14. And then you go back and talk <laughs> to the bar lady and I'm like, yeah, it's, that's the wrong one. Which happens to everyone. That's, that's happened to me. Yeah, I loved on I love on the podcast as well that Vic and yourself, if I could explain this, I hope I explained this correctly, but I just find you guys have real experiences. So you do have, when I hear about uh, people who have gone sober, for me personally, if they're a person who, let's say, hasn't like lived life as much, um, but because... Uh, obviously with yourself and Vic, very different perspectives on drinking and going out. But I really loved, especially the fact Vic has obviously done a lot in her life as well, gone out and now she's doing it. Do, mm. do you know what I mean? I find a lot of people that say to go sober, maybe you think you think of that traditional like uh, good, good boy, good yeah. girl type thing. So I love you, the way you guys can explain your past life. So just segueing into that, mate, um, what it, what, message main message are you guys trying to convey to your listeners so i think we've probably come to this from slightly different angles like vic was a problem drinker so sobriety is her absolute passion she's just written a book that comes out in january like this is her full-time gig like she thinks no what like there should be no alcohol in the world for me my goal with the podcast is just to encourage people to give sobriety a try like i'm not trying to turn the world sober i'm trying to say to anyone whether or not you are an alcoholic or you know you just every now and then get drunk and have terrible hangovers give it a go because mm. i've done it for now coming up to a year and a half fixed done it for five years not a single person that i've met who's gone sober is like found lots of negatives there's only seemingly positives yes there's a bit more social um awkwardness <laughs> yeah basically it, it's all ups you know like it, it is really a positive thing to do in your life wherever wherever you sit on that alcohol spectrum so yeah it's it's sort of i just want people to try i, I, I want to recruit people try it with me L tell me if, if after six months your life has gotten worse sure i was wrong but i'd be surprised 
mate, having a child, I can definitely mm. relate. Like having a hangover is rough yeah. when you have a child. And they, obviously, my daughter's 18 months. So I can't exactly say, oh, daddy's not feeling mm. too good. So we can't play. So, um, mate, how old is your child? 18 months. Yeah, 18 months, 18 months as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. We're on the same. So how's that going, mate, at the moment? Awesome. Actually, this yeah. has been my favourite stage. I, th- I think it gets better. I think at 18 months, he's just... A- I've, very, I've got an abnormally attractive, smiley child. <laughs> Me and my wife were the ugliest babies you can possibly <laughs> imagine. We think he's been swapped at the hospital. Oh, there's some Instagram influencing parents out there in the world who've got a but ugly baby that is ours. But he's, 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 stuck up. he's just a joyous, happy little man. But yeah, I, I hear you. I'm very grateful that I've never had to wander into his room hungover or drunk because they don't care. You know, yeah. you go have a night out, they don't care. They're still up at 5 a.m. shouting. Yeah. People don't tell you that before you have children. Yeah, so just me personally. So I've only seen my mother and father drunk once <laughs> in my life. So they were a positive um, experience for me drinking. And I remember when my dad had his 50th, I came in and he sort of like felt a bit rough and I'd never seen him hungover. Mm. And I said, what's wrong with you today? I think I was jumping on his belly, to be honest, like doing a big like wrestling dive into his belly. Um, he's got a big one as well. But um, yeah, and, and I said, what's wrong with you today? And he's like, oh, dad's a bit like not feeling well. And I said, why? And he goes, oh, I drank last night. And I can remember my brain, my little brain thinking, why would you ever do that? Yeah. Like it's so funny, isn't it? And then obviously then when you turn 18, you're doing it every week. Like, I, And I'm terrible for hangovers i don't know how you went hamish but i would have a hangover every time i drank without fail if it was a bigger night how, what about you mate how did I, you find hangovers i was lucky some days unlucky others <laughs> i had plenty of days when i did 13 steps from like bed to bathroom to throw up to sofa to front door to get pizza <laughs> to sofa to bed i've had lots of those days but it's, yeah. it's funny you say that about the kids' perception of a parent drinking. Because that's something that Vic talked about a bit on the podcast when she says, your children look at you hungover and they go, okay, daddy drinks this drink and then daddy stays in bed sad all day. Why is dad drinking the drink? Like, what message is that giving your kid? Is it that they don't love themselves? Is it they don't want to hang out with you? Is it that they they prioritise this drink over time spent with the family? Like, kids are not that intelligent. <laughs> My certainly isn't. <laughs> oh, they, they, they don't put two and two together. They don't understand. So it's quite a dangerous message to give. I'm similar to you. My, I've never seen my parents drunk, ever. Mm. Like they're not. They drink. I would say you're surprised. They probably drink every day, which is actually an alcohol use disorder. But they have, yeah, they've literally never never been drunk, which mm. is, yeah, which is yeah, unusual. Interesting. And then my, so my uncle's alcohol killed them, essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, they were both different on the spectrum so one was a what you call functioning alcoholic so he he would drink after work and things like that um had a very good job they both worked but it's what you said what is normal Mm. because in their group of friends especially working in a factory it's normal to go and drink and australia has a bit of a culture that polly sort of got used to we we do have a question later on about this as well but we could delve into a tiny bit Mm. just that um sort of poker machine I don't know how much you've seen of it here, but the poker machine drinking after work late at night. Mm. Have you seen much of that? Um, I am not in pubs late at night very much <laughs> anymore, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the poker machine t- discussion is a whole other thing. Like there's, it's mad that pokies keep pubs alive. We should not be allowed to gamble when we are drunk. Like it's just another addiction that they they compliment each other far too much like all of us that everyone that i know has put a drunk bet on right it's it's pretty insane and it's it's not fair and it's a lot of the pubs i go to it's the first thing you see when you walk in you know like we're we're not geared up for that yeah 100 percent. i think with the pubs as you said with in england obviously that would be unusual wouldn't it to see a poker machine um or poker machines fueling Mm. like the actual pub so one thing obviously it with your co- in England, I guess it is. Uh, when you do think of England, you do think of a drinking culture. Mm. But the one thing I do like about England, you can just go to the pub with your family and then uh, meet different sorts of people. And I don't, I actually don't think in England you would need to drink at mm. all at a pub to have fun. Um, I, I've been. Uh, a few times with Polly's family and I haven't been the one drinking and I've had a great time because people are a little bit more 
open in mm-hmm. pubs there um, than in Australia. So I think that is probably a positive. But then again, because you are, if you are a kid and you're going to the pub constantly, does that put a, mm. a sort of reflection in your mind? It's, it's a tough one, I isn't it? I love pub culture. Like I think that is one of the best things about England, particularly if you live in the countryside and that is like the epicentre of your village. You know, that's where people get to know each other and hang out and meet each other's families. So I love pub culture. But, yeah, if we could still emulate pubs just without so much of the booze culture which comes with it, then happy days. But, yeah, it's probably an impossible dream that I have that. Yeah. Uh, so, mate, your podcast, uh, Sober Awkward, mm-hmm. It's I've been listening to it pretty much nonstop lately. Um, obviously, when you, you can understand, when you have a guest on, you want to do your, mm-hmm. I guess, research, you can say. But I, I started listening and I sort of got hooked, which I'm sure a lot of your vi- uh, listeners. So, you're approaching 2 million downloads mm-hmm. and nominated for the best wellness podcast in Australia. Why do you think you've connected so well with your audience? I think it's that thing of treating serious subjects with humor so we also try to avoid doing interviews if you interview someone who's an ex-addict the conversation is often quite dull like Vic has been on every podcast that you could imagine to talk about addiction and there's three questions that you can ask someone it is how bad did it get what made you stop what's your life like now and they have all answered those questions a million times and they sound like they're reading a script and it's mm. not fun so on ours we go okay well let's share our own experiences And I've got okay stories. Vic has got more crazy drinking (laughs) stories than everyone I know put together. So what we want to do, any addiction has got a lot of shame and guilt, all right? Those are two huge emotions that anyone living with an addiction has. So we've said, okay, well, look, we're going to share our most awful stories. I've told every one of my most awful stories on this podcast. Vic has done that tenfold. And the idea is that through doing that, we are going to alleviate you of some of your own shame about yours. You'll listen to ours and either go, whoa, I'm not as bad as them. Or you'll, t- you'll hear ours and go, well, they've told theirs, I'm happy to share mine. So we want to take shame and guilt out of the equation. And we want to make you laugh because people connect with stuff that laughs. And I think the fact that neither of us were alcoholics means that the, the listenership is wide open. We're saying anyone that has ever had a hangover, listen to the podcast, it might help. So I guess having that wide audience, I've been quite lucky in that Vic lives and breathes this. I've got a brilliant co-host, not only for her stories, but, you know, she'll spend her days on Facebook groups of, of drinkers in New Zealand and be like, guys, you've got to listen to this podcast. She gets banned from most of them. You know, she's like doing, doing the due diligence to get Achilles, I think that's your new job, mate. <laughs> it helps, it helps. So I think her passion certainly helps. Hmm. Um, but I think we've got lucky. You know, I think for us, most of our listeners are in America. I've got no idea why. Maybe they mm. like the British accent. Then it's the UK and then it's here. We've only recently started doing guests because of the reason that I told you. So we want the best guest possible. So our first guest was Fatboy Slim. We're like, okay, Fatboy Slim is now the mark. Every guest needs to be Fatboy Slim level. Very difficult to get other Fatboy Slims. Particularly if you Google um, sobriety people, or sober people, it's basically the same list on every website. Mm. Elton John. Brad Pitt, you know, they're not replying to our messages. Brad Pitt, <laughs> Elton John. One day, mate. One day. <laughs> so I think, you know, short answer, I guess, it's the idea of alleviating people from their shame and guilt and trying to treat this subject with humour. Like there is a stigma that sober is boring and we want to break that stigma and the podcast is part of that. I think, uh, just my personal opinion, I think you've done that brilliantly on the podcast. Um, it's amazing. One one story, I don't want to go too far off track, but Vic um, had a story about when she went out and when she was drinking and a guy actually spiked her drink. Mm. Um, it turned out okay because her friends came to, you know, came to and helped her. But it was one that I remember I was like sort of driving and I sort of like obviously having a daughter. It's a tough conversation to have or tough thing to think about when you have obviously, you know, you see her, she's 18 months old. But I think her saying that publicly is important, Mm. I think, as well, because you might have someone listening that something did happen um, to them, you know, and then they can at least someone's on there on a public domain Mm. sort of saying these stories that are sort of, you know, a lot of people don't like to... Um, as you said, share their life with people. So I think you, you, you and Vic are really 
good at that, mate. Like, I, I think it's amazing just to share your stories and to uh, relate to different people as well. Can I, can I ask you, Hamish, with the podcast, uh, can we talk about, just on the lighter side of things, how many things have gone wrong? And the reason why I'm asking you this is so I feel better. Okay, good. Yeah. So I've been podcasting for like four or five years, pretty much faultlessly in terms of tech issues. <laughs> Two weeks ago. And the worst thing was two weeks ago, we recorded our Christmas episode, okay? So we come, we, we do it in a library now. We are in full fancy dress. Vic is in one of those like blow up elves. <laughs> Whole episode, we're doing photos and videos and fancy dress and Christmas party and, you know, all excited and we exchange gifts. Two hours of recording, we did two episodes. As we leave, we go to the computer. The computer's logged us out because it's a public library. It's wiped everything. If you log back in, nothing's saved. The feeling that I had then was just like sick to my stomach. And so we had to redo the Christmas episode. We were going to do it that day. We're like, come on, we're here, let's just do it. Like, no, we both feel sick. So we had to redo it the following week back in fancy dress. I had to rewrap the present. We had to reopen the present we'd already given each other. It was, you know, when something awful like that happens, you go, I go, it could have been worse. It could have been worse. I think the worst thing that could happen is an interview like this or someone overseas or someone high profile and you get to the end and go, oh my God, I didn't record. And mm. it's my fault. I, don't, I don't know if I would have the nerve to call them and be like, can we do it again? And ask all the same questions so I did. Yeah, it would be tough. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think that is as bad as it's gotten in terms of a tech cock up. But yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's probably the thing that gives me most anxiety in life is thinking you've hit record and you haven't. Yeah, I always double check, to be honest. And while we've been chatting, I've looked over a couple of times just to see, obviously, we're recording. Because you just say, I think with a podcast, if you... Uh, you might agree with this. You just don't want to miss something that's natural. And then obviously if you have to uh, redo things, you redo them. But it's it's just that feeling, oh, the first bit yeah. was so good. Well, and then that's the other thing, which a cock up I've made a million times, is you finish yeah. the interview, you're great, thanks so much, turn it off, and then they say something fascinating. And you're like, no. So I now just go, if, if the interview's over, I let it run for a bit and I hit stop and I go, let's talk about anything else like talking about breakfast I don't want to talk about sobriety anymore because we're going to come out with some nugget of information that could have saved someone's life in, in New Zealand so like that is a constant cock up that I make in interviews turning off and then they say something brilliant yeah we've sort of discussed that because we had um, Broderick Wright so he played uh, first grade um, <laughs> we sort of obviously turned the podcast off and we had a bit of a chat and he had gold like yeah. stories but I must say some of them maybe um, not the best for a podcast but um, I think just having people speak naturally is good <laughs> as well which as I said to you at the start of the show we, we sort of want to have that balance I, I like on, on the Sobel awkward how you guys have the um research or stats mm. behind things and you'll uh, say um you know a hundred thousand people in britain blah 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 and then have like a natural discussion mm. is that something you guys sort of write down as well yeah. and prepare um beforehand yeah the, show? the way it works is we write one episode a week each and, you know, it's a topic that we come up with and you go, right, this one is mine and that one is yours. And we do as much research as we can about it. So, you know, there's only so many topics you can do. So we're always looking for like something really specific, something really like minute that we can focus on around sobriety. And I think a lot of podcasts are just people chatting. And you can tell when you listen, like these are just two people chatting. So I think if there is some sort of structure and research that like takes the onus off the listener having to do the research and go cool here are the stats here are the facts here's the science people appreciate it not only from like a structural point of view but from like okay these people have actually got evidence rather than just chat and shit you know 40 percent of the episode is us sharing embarrassing stories about our life be them drinking stories or sobriety stories about funny crap that her kids said so I think it has to have some sort of meat some sort of like scientific backing to not just be another pointless podcast you know there are plenty of people just chatting shit about drinking and sobriety so we want to we want to stand out by at least putting some work in and what's your do you have a not to put you on the spot mate but did you have like a stat that you read or heard that you thought whoa that's yeah. like absolutely blown my mind in terms of sobriety so vic her favorite one which she had on the Huberman lab podcast is that if you drink 
one glass of wine a week, it will increase your anxiety every day for the rest of the week. Wow, that's a big Which one. It's just insane, right? You just never, you never think of something like that. No, because I think even when you, for myself, when I think about not drinking, it's you think about not having the big nights. That's <laughs> like myself because I'm not a big drinker like yourself. I, I never really drunk at home or anything like that. So it was more just, oh, I won't have the big nights. I won't have the hangover. But I didn't think about the potential mm. roll on from the week. But I do know as... We said just having a kid, um, a child, then on the Monday you just feel like yeah. terrible, don't you? It does roll. It seems to roll in. And as you get older, which I didn't think would happen, it gets tougher, doesn't it, for as sure. well? Yeah. But I think, you know, I think some people connect with stats. Some people hear a stat and go, okay, I'm going to change my life because that stat is, you know, connecting with me. I connect more with stories. So I heard years ago, we've had Lee Mack on, on our podcast, and he told a story on our episode, which I heard him say on another podcast, when he goes, you know, we get home on a Friday and you sit down for the first time and you have that first sip of beer or cider or whatever your drink is, and you go, oh, I instantly feel better. And he goes, we know that it takes 15 to 20 minutes for alcohol to hit your bloodstream. So that feeling is not the alcohol. That's not what it's doing. It's probably the first time you've sat down or the first time you're with your friends or you're in the pub, you're looking at the grass and a lake and a beach, and that is what's making you feel good. So it's not alcohol. We give too much credit or too much blame to the alcohol for those moments. So he said, look, what I do now is I will have any other drink. So I will go and get a pint of blackcurrant juice. And that first drink on a Friday when everyone else is having their beer, have that sip and go, and if... Half an hour later, you still like crave a beer, then go get a beer. But probably it's not the alcohol that's doing it. It's just that first moment at the end of the week. And I heard him say that, and this is when I was still drinking. And I was like, yes, that makes sense. That makes yeah. total sense. Everyone can relate to that end, end, of a, end of a week drink that they think makes them feel better instantly. So what's your end of the week drink, mate, to finish so off? I am a big fan of Heaps Normal. That is my favourite non-alcoholic beer. Non-alcoholic drinks can be a trigger for some people because they look like beer, they are marketed like beer, they taste like beer. People have one or two and go, fuck it, I'll just have beer. So they work for me. I like them. I think they can help you look invisible at a party if you don't want people to ask you. Heaps Normal is my absolute favourite. I'm not sponsored by them or anything like that, but that is my go-to. I mean, I love elderflower because I'm British and posh, but I would <laughs> say that um, Heaps, Heaps Normal is, yeah, the best non-alcoholic beer. For, for me, it does the job. I keep it in the fridge and I treat it like a treat. So, like, I look forward to it all week, and on Friday, I'll have it. And I can't have six of them, um, but I'll have one or two, and it does the job. Although, I do still get hangovers despite being sober. I had four non-alcoholic Guinnesses when I was in England, and I woke up the hangover. Wow. So That's even... You're even worse than me, mate. I know. I know. Wow. It's not fair, and it feels very unjust. And you're... Uh, not to delve too much into your private life, but has this helped your... Um, your relationship, your partner's relationship with alcohol as well, would so you say? she certainly drinks less because it's not fun drinking by yourself. And I think it's, it's helped her take a step back and go, okay, why did I drink? What was the amount that I was drinking? Was it okay? So it's definitely made her reconsider it. She's not sober, but she very rarely drinks now. And, it, you know, that can be a difficult conversation. I would say that half of the emails that we receive are people who are going... Either I'm afraid my partner's over drinking or I've gone sober but my partner still drinks and I don't know what to do about it. So it is a very difficult relationship to have because people often feel like you have robbed them of their drinking partner. We go, well, I want to have a drink, but I'm not going to do it by myself or if we're on a holiday. Or what does our retirement look like if one of us is sober? So it's, it's a massive topic. I've been lucky that you know, Liz has been supportive and she understands that this is my, I do this for a job. You know, like, I'm not just not drinking for the hell of it. Like this is now my career. And because people listen to the podcast and go, your podcast helped me go sober. It sort of motivates me to carry on doing it. it it's bigger than just giving up alcohol. So I've been very lucky, but lots of people don't. And it is the biggest reason I say that people would then go back to drinkings. If your partner doesn't support you, eventually you get eroded down and, and just go back to your old habits. And I like you saying on the podcast, mate, that you count, you found that so having a year off, you'd always count down. Mm. So you count up. I really thought that was a great message that yeah. you said on the podcast. So yeah. I think, yeah, anyone that gives up for 30 days or six months or for, yeah, I originally said I'll do a year. 
the, yeah, the mindset is your counting down days. And for me, that was helpful because I thought giving up forever is, is too big a thing. I was like, I can't even conceive it. Whereas for Vic, who's a problem drinker, she finds a huge amount of freedom in giving up forever. Like it, it's forever and I don't have to think about it and the days just count up. So I found it helpful to count down, count down, count down. Then I hit, hit the year and I was like, well, I'm going I'm to carry on being sober. And then you start counting up and it's a complete different mind shift. Ziggy Alberts was on the podcast and he described it much more beautifully than I ever could. He goes, I have given up indefinitely. And indefinitely feels easier than giving up forever. Sure, if you take a step back, it's sort of the same thing. But just phrasing it like that makes it more malleable and more like easy to, to get through in your mind, which I totally understand. Forever is far too big for me. I can do indefinitely. I can do today. I can do tomorrow. I don't know what 50 years looks like. But that mindset change really helped me. The Weekly Offload is sponsored by Fit Living. Fit Living delivers the best treatment in the inner west. They offer remedial massage, physiotherapy, acupuncture, and chiropractic care. In our next segment, we are joined by NRLW expert Achilles Byrne as we discuss everything from alcohol and sport to even the Cricket World Cup. Enjoy! But yeah. I, I don't even know if that would be enough. You know, like in football, soccer, you've got Ronaldo, the best player. He is sober. Even that is enough for lots mm. of footballers then to become sober, sober. And it's sort of a counterintuitive. You know, you've got these elite athletes and they are very much wedded to alcohol brands, which is not what elite athletes are meant to do. So I've got no idea. I wish I knew the answer to how to fix sporting cultures, drinking <laughs> Would you say that um, more education in sort of the younger groups... Like you got like like development squads and stuff coming up, more like education towards you know alcohol behaviour and sort of what it means to like their fan base mm. and sort of like you know they they will be some of them will be leaders or ninety percent of them will be leaders. So what it looks like in the public eye and what what it essentially means to their careers. I think so. I think if you said, look, if you want to be an elite athlete, taking care of your nutrition and your, what you're drinking is going to be a huge part of it. If we hammered that into 13 and 14 year olds we might stand a chance. Mm. But then you look at great athletes who have got drink brands, David Beckham, um, Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor, yeah, yeah. A lot of them have got drink brands. So it's sort of, you know, and those people are cool. So mm. it's sort of difficult to, to fix the issue. I do think young people today are way more aware of alcohol than we were. You know, yeah. the idea of being 19 and sober didn't exist when we were 19. Mm. Now there's more sober 20 to 24 year olds than there's ever been before. Mm. So I think we're getting there slowly. I wonder if in... 500 years we look back at this stage of the world and be like what were we doing like 99 percent of people drink alcohol three times a week you're like what are we doing mm. we're all dying and like mental health has been the worst it's ever been and like why are we not connecting the dots that maybe we're drinking too much so i don't know i just hope that the next generation is smarter than us that's all we can hope right well maddie and i we're, we're both in the fitness industry as mm. you know being pts and i think slowly I see a trend like me at 42 years old when I was like 15 years old going into the gym we just you see all of the older meathead guys um, not many women in the gym not many young kids yeah. fast forward to today like peak hour at our gym it's just nothing but school kids like you got the Newington boys in there you know what I mean so I think the education about being healthier not so much about drinking but just like prolonging your life yeah. um, is a slow steady race and the win against alcohol because it's been around since you know bc you know everyone mm. was drinking mm. and celebrating wins and stuff so i think you know towards the more education side and these kids coming into the gym it looks it looks like a brighter future but again we're, we're up against it right is there a drinking culture within pts or within gyms is it you know we all look after ourselves so we are able to party because we're going to do a thousand push-ups on monday and, and burn off all the calories that we drank i think it I think it comes down on age as well. Like, um, you know, you got some young PTs coming up. Like, we still got guys to go out and sort of celebrate. I think more in our culture, a lot of guys focus on their nutrition more and training more. But then if there's, like, festivals or, you know, um, celebrations, mm. we would go have a drink. And But, again, we are around, we're around the industry where people care about their fitness mm. and care about their health. So as much partying they do they also look after like their calories, mm. their training. And I would say consistency is key 
into their training and then they allow themselves a cheap week or cheap week, yeah. cheap weekend. Yeah, I'd agree with Achilles. I think you sort of, um, when I first started PT, my schoolmates were very interested in our in our parties and going out and they said, oh, it must be crazy. They saw, you know, the guys and girls on Instagram and they, oh, it must be crazy every weekend parties. It's not really. But I would say when you do blow off steam, it's, <laughs> my clients are listing, but it's a big one um, <laughs> in terms of like Christmas parties and things like that. But I, I'd say generally it's it, talking about what we said was normal having a drink after work. That's I don't know any PT that we work with that has a drink after work. So mm-hmm. that's a positive. But I suppose if there's one negative, we could the binge culture perhaps on a, on a big, big night is quite big. Um, that'd probably be the only difference. But I'd say like, Pretty good, would yeah. you say, the culture? It, well, essentially, it's it's our business to be fit, right? It's mm-hmm. not like um, in the corporate world where you need to go out for a drink to do a lot of networking, mm-hmm. do you know? Uh, we, as PTs, we sort of try to get them off the drink and sort of get healthier, so we've got to sort of lead by example. Mm-hmm. Um, but I totally agree with you. The binge, the binge culture, like when we do go out, it's a massive night. Yeah. And, um, yes, the sort of like the Uber Eats builds up. The calories go up and like sort of like I wreck until the Wednesday until we start feeling good again. Yeah, 100%. And um, so with the – just to lead on from the NRL draw, Hamish, we must tell you our team, the Parramatta Eels, has been completely dudded, mate. They've been – we've got the toughest draw Mm. you could ever imagine – We've got five-day turnarounds. We've got um, we last year we were on the Thursday and Friday nights quite quite regularly, which is obviously tough just uh, to turn around and with training-wise as well. So you for yourself, Hamish, who do you follow in football? Just as a well, you guys can pitch your team to me today. I have not committed to any AFL <coughs> team at all. <coughs> I'm a cricket man. I'm a cricket and a soccer man, so I'm I'm happy to. I mean, if you say I need to support the Eels, I'll support the Eels, but you're just telling me they've got a bad draw and they're probably going to have a crap season. <laughs> yeah. are, are they one of the teams going to Vegas? No, no they're they are not. not. Vegas. Yeah. They've got bad draws. I'm not totally sold on the Eels <laughs> so far. Did you know, actually, uh, in Queensland, so they perhaps could be a PNG, Papua New Guinea team, but they would be based out of um, Cairns. So there could be another... Que- so you have a few Queensland teams. Yeah. You have, obviously, got the Broncos, the Dolphins, um, Cowboys and... Titans as well. So you have a few to pick from. And then apparently, yeah, the Papua New Guinean team would be the 18th team and play out of Cairns. So it could be, you could have a few different options, mate. I'd say if they get in, what a, get on board. Like you're yeah. an Englishman living in Australia. I'd say get on board PNG. What do you think, Achilles? Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, they could do with the supporters up there. There's so many rugby league teams up in Queensland and mm. they're all doing really well. So I've um, been like a bad omen for teams recently. <laughs> Since to Australia, I support Manchester United, who have had like ten years of being awful. I support England cricket, which is which are going okay, but Australia keep winning every World Cup at the moment. They've had the best year ever, which is an English cricket fan is bloody painful. Mm. And that when those things happen at the same time, I struggle to find joy in sports, even though it's the thing that I love more than anything else in the world. Did you know I actually was going to start the show? So I'm not a massive cricket guy, mm. but I heard on your podcast um, you saying that you stand out in Australia because you don't like the Australia team and you support the English um, <laughs> cricket team. So when I did see they won, um, obviously I woke up the next morning. I watched a little bit when um, England was batting and I uh, obviously they said Eng- um India had won every game mm-hmm. and then come against the Aussies. And then I sort of said a joke, obviously, Polly's English. Achilles' uh, partner's English yep. too. Right. So I said a joke to Polly after. I said, oh, did you know that we give out World Cups when you graduate high school here? And she was <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And I said, we won the Cricket World Cup. And she goes, I did not. She's a football. She's Brentford. Yeah. Uh, big Brentford fan. So she's a football. She's like, I don't, I don't care about cricket, but... Yeah, we've got a few. I'm a massive cricket fan. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, massive. I play on the weekends. Yeah. Shout out to the Leichhardt Wanderers. I am such a Gumby. I just, yeah. I'm just in there for the sledge, right? So yeah. I play D-grade cricket. Um, I'm not that very good, but I'm just in there for the sport. But going back to the Cricket World Cup final, mm. um, there was like 130,000 yeah. people. And I've watched cricket since I could walk, mm-hmm. right? And it was the very first time that, like, the Indian fans – are fantastic. They're a bit like the English fans yeah. when they get behind this football team. Mm-hmm. Um, but when 
Vera Colley, I've got goosebumps talking about it now. Vera Colley got out. Mm. There was silence. There was silence for the rest of the, the day. Re- like, <laughs> and they are, yeah, Indian it's cricket insane. fans are like the greatest fans of any sport anywhere in the world. Uh, to be fair, you know, I married an Australian. My <laughs> child is Australian. I live in Australia. There's something I just can't support the Australian <laughs> cricket team. I find myself rooting for India in that game. But I must say, usually growing up in England in the 90s, mm. it was easy to hate the Australian cricket team because some of the players were very easy to hate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, all of the players are kind of nice. Like, mm. I, I like almost every player in the team, but I still, there's something deep in me that can't mm. support the team. But I do like them. I remember going to uh, an Ashes over in Lords, mm. and when Shane Warren was still alive, uh, rest in peace, and I remember the English fans loved him so bad. bad. They were yeah. chanting, if only you were English. Yeah. And he was just turning around giving them the bird. Yeah. <laughs> like it was just, that's just the character. And it's like, I can understand why you would hate yeah. an, an Aussie cricket player. But fantastic. Like the Ashes, I think I've never, I've been to a Boxing Day test down mm. in Melbourne. Fantastic. But the English crowd uh, in, in the Ashes tour yeah. is something Else. The Ashes is the reason I live in Australia. Like, I went through a breakup in England and I was like, I need to cheer myself up. I'll book a trip to Australia. The Ashes is on. I got here. It was meant to be three weeks. I got here. I met a girl on my first day in Australia. I ended up marrying her. And then like, I got married Christmas Day two years ago. Our first day of married life. MCG. Fancy oh, dress. Like, wow. I went to every test to the last one except for Adelaide. Like, cricket is the reason I live in Australia. But... It's been cruel. We lose every <laughs> game that I go to over here. I don't know if we'll ever win a test match in Australia. But yeah, it's hard to see the team, the Aussie team do well. But I, I like Pat mm, Cummings, so I'm happy uh, that Pat Cummings is doing well. I think he's the nicest captain we've ever had. Married an English girl. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> he's, yeah. he's got the right idea. Well, we can't. Achilles and I can't I disagree with that one. No, no, no. They must be the best people to marry, should he Absolutely. marry in English. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the accent, mate. She's got a real posh action. It was like, yep, yep, marry me, please. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's funny you say that about the, Eng- the Australian cricket team. So you're going to hate me, Hamish, but mm. I cannot support the male football team. Oh, like sorry. as in soccer. That's I can't. Okay. I just, we watched the, when we've spoken about the David Beckham documentary mm. on mm. here before. And I watched like when he got sent off and just the way the fair, like obviously mm. not, you're not a typical fan that Polly doesn't like either mm. but some of the fans I just can't so when it was the Women's World Cup Polly was like oh you're going to support England like if we make the final I said yeah and I did mean it <laughs> but um, with I said with the men I said I can't, never, yeah. I can't I just yeah it's probably a similar thing you know you have a bit of uh, the Australian cricket team has a bit of arrogance when you win mm-hmm. that's what like Australian rugby league team if we can link if I could link that it's kind of similar we dominate the international game and I remember an English uh, rugby league player he said oh I'm sick of Australia being arrogant but the thing you got to do you got to beat them mm. well yeah. in defense of the English men's football team it's hard to hate them because they never win like yeah. as in Aussie <laughs> surely like it's easy to hate the English team because they're always winning everything we haven't won anything since 1966 mm. but we, we we have good players but we just have lost for mm. 60 years I think the hardest thing being part of that English side is not the opposition, it's the tabloids and the fans. Horrible, right. It's like that's added pressure. And then you got to play well and play for your position. And if you have one bad game, it's just mm. all over the news. And, I mean, it would be horrible, like a great honour to represent your country and, and, and your fans. But, mate, one bad game is just like you yeah. want to put your head in the pillow. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, we think that's bad. Then look at Indian cricket. Like you've mm. got a billion people <laughs> watching you rather than just tens of millions like England. Yeah. He said, the, I saw a tweet actually from an Indian fan and it said, um, can we please support, can we please get into another sport? Because it said basically tomorrow on the buses in the mm. streets, he goes, everyone's going to be disappointed. And I feel like England is kind of like, even though you guys have a few sports, with when the Football World Cup, so I, I've been there for two. Mm. Uh, I was living there at um, the one in Russia and then I was there for the last one around Christmas in the um, 
uh, in the Middle East as well. And I said to Polly, like, it's just you guys are like, this is like our rugby league team. It's easy for you to celebrate, but it's easy for you to start a riot. (laughs) So I think it's like exactly the same. We get our hopes up with Parramatta and English football fans. You get a good win over a a respected nation and then it's suddenly, this is, you know, we're coming home. Obviously, I give it to Polly about, you know, we're coming home when they lose. But, um, yeah, it just, it's that expectation, I think. It's the, uh, so we've spoken about it, the psychology Mm. of teams, I think, with England. It's Mm. not that, because you guys have the best league in the world, Mm. most entertaining, but it's, Mm. I think it's the psychology. What what do you, I know we're going off track, but what do you think, mate, about that? It's it's the pressure. I actually think the the reason the last five, six years have gone well is because Gareth Southgate's been like, right, let's take away all the pressure. Let's have a good relationship with the media instead of just, like, um, ostracising. Is that the word? Ostracising yeah. them. Um, and I think it's right. Let's not go in thinking we're going to win every tournament. We haven't won, like I said, since 66. So I think now that that pressure's been taken off and they're slightly more human with the press, mm-hmm. that we seem to be playing well. Like we're, we're doing pretty good. We got to a final and a semi-final. It's going to take something huge. It's kind of, you know, the World Cup, the Cricket World Cup we just had, Australia won that game because Australia win World Cups. Mm. There is something, there is some sort of inner belief that we show up on the big stage. Yep. And there's always been like that for 20 years. England, we lose on the big stage. It's going to take something huge to change that. I think, you know, if we do win a World Cup or a Euros in the next 10 years, I think we'll then win two or three in the next 20, 30 years. But it just takes some, you know, we know, you know that in the same rugby league, right, there's teams that just find a way of winning, just somehow always come out on top. Well, Maddie and I spoke about it. It's about setting a culture in the team. Mm. Like, like Melbourne Storm have got a culture of just winning. Panthers have got that now. Mm. Broncos are starting to build that. And then there's teams like our team with a culture of choking on the big stages. Mm. And I think you're absolutely right when it comes to England. Once they win that one, because it's been like 1966, and it's like they get there and it's like they sort of see the end before it's mm. become and it puts extra pressure. But I think once they pop that, bang, it's just, it will just trickle down into the and set a culture of just winning. Because yeah. once that happens, it's like a rich run, right? Mm. And with England, um, do you think... When it goes to penalties, how do you feel? Because I've been, I've been with Polly a couple of times. So um, the Euros, it went to penalties and she was like, that, like that's it. Literally, that was her feeling. And I, I think you can feel when we, our team, the Eels, have had a bad patch. We had sort of a few years where if we got a little bit behind, you can feel the stadium deflate. And I think it does affect the players. I mean, I'd love to have a player on and discuss this, but I, I, I think it affects. So do you think that is a knock-on effect too? Because she had that. And sometimes, sometimes we have we do have a lot of English listeners, but you can be more realist um, than not negative, Polly. I'm not saying negative, <laughs> but more realist. Do you think that's a factor too? I think we won the penalty shootout recently, and there was this, oh my god, we can actually win one. But usually we lose them. I think as soon as it happens and we miss a penalty, there is a feeling of here we go again. Mm. And for me, what I hate about it, because, you know, the English public, the English fan base is brutal, is you're just so aware, whether or not it's your team or not, no one deserves the stick that you get for missing a penalty, the blame you get for missing a penalty. Mm. You forget the 120 minutes of football that went before, and you go, you missed the penalty that knocked us out of the World Cup, and it gets racial, and it gets personal, Mm. and it gets, you know, these guys are 25. You know, so I sort of feel like, in one, England are bad at penalty shootouts. Two, it's the most painful way to lose a game. I can never watch replays of penalty, you know, 98. I haven't watched a replay of that. It's been 20 whatever years. So I feel like that plus the blame, the individual blame, is so painful. But I like watching it as a neutral. Like, you know, mm. any World, the World Cup we just had, you yeah. watch Argentina win a penalty shootout. Love it. Mm. Love the tension when it's not your team yeah. and it's unfair and it's brutal. And you watch, you know, you see them on the walk ups to the penalty spot. You're like, yeah. he is going to miss. He, he's bricking it. He is going to miss. So I like the emotions of it. And I think for new, for people that don't like football, like my wife is watching it and she loved it. She's like, oh my God, they just have to kick it once. And this is what it goes down to. Mm. So she it's that theatre, right? Like just that yeah. build up of like, you know, everyone's hopes and you're like, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Maddie and I, we're, we're massive supporters of the NRLW mm. side of the women's game and 
we've just seen the soccer World Cup with the women's, yeah. and you being a soccer, sorry, football fans from the English, how do you think the game is? Because you guys have a Premier League for yeah. the women's over there. What what are you, what are your thoughts on their growth and how do you think the women's game is going over there? So I went to a couple of the games, the Women's World Cup here recently, and I would say that as an experience, they were probably the best sporting fixtures that I've ever been to wow. of any sport. Wow. It was friendlier. It was friendlier. There was obviously less alcohol, but that's sort of untoward. Mm. I thought the support, you know, I went to the game in Brisbane, England game, it's 40,000 people. The Sydney game's just 70,000 people for, mm. a, for a women's game. Amazing. It's unheard of 10 years Amazing. ago. And, you know, I've been to enormous cricket matches, women's games, and not that many people turn up. Mm. But football is selling out stadiums five times over. So I think, and now seeing that trickle over into um, UK, they're on Sky Sports, they're on the main TV channel at the main time. They are now becoming celebrities, they're now getting paid far more. I think it's so good to see. Mm. I think usually men would watch it and go, well, it's slow and yeah. the standard's not as good. Go to a game, watch it. The standard is off the charts. Yeah. Like I think I think women's sport, probably I'm just talking about football and cricket, but like they are unbelievable yeah. the standard and now it's finally getting the attention and the commercial revenue that it deserves i def i definitely speak for everyone i think i can speak for everyone like the women's world cup here was fantastic mm. it was so good to watch it was mouth watering what do you think nrl women's game could take from um the women's soccer game and how help it grow here because if we are it is sort of like just a young um sort of like uh, game growing here. What what do the women's uh, soccer team do well in terms of marketing and stuff? Do you think? I guess every Premier League team having a women's team. I don't mm. know if that's the same in the NRL here, but that that took a long time. Like yeah. Man United, my team, did not have a women's team until very recently. Yeah, there's no excuse for that. Mm. If you're a Man U fan, you should support the men and women's team. Yeah. So I think that's important. Giving them, I I think. Maybe TV companies are reluctant to give them the, the, the peak slots. They think, oh, there's not as much attention, there's not much money. Yeah. Give it to them. Mm. Just give it to them because the, the, the evidence that I've seen is that people are up for it. Yeah. People are really up for watching it. But to the game, you know, how often have you been to a rugby league game and seen women in the, in the crowd? Yeah. For me, with football and cricket, not often. One in 30 fans might be a woman or, or a girl. Mm. Let, let's change that. The yeah. Women's World Cup here was 90% women. It was unbelievable. So I think giving them the opportunity, every team needs to have a women's team, getting into the grassroots. What the, what the cricket world did well in England was they put the 100 on. The 100 is, is not 2020, it's 100 balls. And for the men, it's sort of been okay. But what they've done is that every game has had a women's game on first. So you've got the women's game starts at four and the men's game starts at seven. So you get a ticket and you get a ticket to both games. And that has been huge for the mm. women's game. So the 100 will probably go down as a failure for men's cricket long term. But for the women's game, it's been a game changer. Wow. So I think doing those multi-fixtures, you know, NRL, it's, it's a, the game's two hours. Mm. You could easily mm. on a Saturday go, right, well, you get two games for your ticket price. We'll do the women's one first, then the men's or vice versa and see if that helps to grow it. Mm. Yeah. Can we, um, I'm loving this chat, Hamish, but could we also incorporate our question from our millions and millions of weekly offload fans. <laughs> so um, with uh, drinking in terms of Australia and England, uh, so this is from Polly Kemp King, uh, <laughs> massive, massive fan of the show. Um, yeah, do you think there's a big difference with Australia and England in terms of drinking, mate? I think almost every country other than some in the UAE have got a problem with drinking. <laughs> I think in England, we're doing inside in pubs because it's cosy and it's cold. In Australia, we're doing outside. We're doing, it's more beaches, it's more surf clubs. You know, it's, it's basically the same thing, just in a different country. I don't think there's any real difference. I think basically mm. we, England and Australia are more similar than we like to admit. Yeah. <laughs> We've got the same drinking culture. Well, I guess we, we are more proud of our pubs. Mm. You guys are better at house parties. That would be sort of my experience. You guys have got the barbecues. barbecues. Yeah, yeah. You guys have got barbecues. We've got pubs. I think the culture of both sides of the world is similar. It's, it needs addressing and yeah. it's a slow process. Yeah, absolutely right. The first time I went to Europe, I went to Greece um, and we went to hire like mopeds and four-wheelers over there and they were very reluctant to give it to us. Mm. Uh, us the guy, the exact words, no... Uh, uh, 
Don't do accents, man. If you want to lose thousands and thousands of weekly offline fans, Achilles has the worst English accent you've ever Terrible. heard in your life. Terrible. So just, just speak yeah, yeah. as you would. <laughs> no, you, you would just basically say no, no to the English, no to the Australians. You guys party too much, come back, bang, crash. I was like, yeah. oh, wow. And I didn't really realise that. Like, And then I spent some time living in Thailand and like, because I was doing a little bit of martial arts over there, I got to see it. Like guys would come over, party, and it's like most of the travel was with the Aussie boys and the English boys just getting rowdy, like written off. And I was like, is this what we're really like? And I got to know some of the Thai locals and like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Particularly Brits and Aussies that travel, right? Mm, yeah. the, the ones of us that travel typically are the ones that drink the most. That is yeah. how it works, it seems. When when Polly sees, so when we're in Europe and she sees a football jersey, she's like, oh, here we go. Like, <laughs> especially, particularly the same thing. We do have listeners from Liverpool, but Liverpool in England, like mm. she loves the place, but she goes, if I see a Liverpool jersey in uh, like, uh, we're in Tenerife, I think she just like rolled her eyes. She's like, here we go. Because if you're wearing a jersey, in England, it's a little different, Achilles as well. Well, you've been there with your partner, but I found like if you wear a jersey and you're not going to a match, you're a weirdo. I totally hear you're it. You're a freak. On a holiday, like you're yeah. on a beach. What are you doing? <laughs> like you're, I've never done that. Like, <laughs> is a team playing today? No, you just, you just bring full Liverpool tracksuit. There's no judgment. There's yeah, no judgment. You're not in the under 18 squad, are you? So it's a little bit. You got yeah. the socks. You got yeah. the shorts. Mate, she's on the same page as you. She absolutely finds it so cringeworthy. She just she's like oh my god and then you usually have their mates rock up and they're like oh i want to watch the footballs you know saying to someone who can't barely speak english or like just being sort of rowdy and she's just oh my god it's interesting being out of the country like i feel i've basically not lived in england for most of the last 10 years and having that distance of not like watching every game and it being in every conversation has given me the ability to like kind of laugh at it if my team loses i'm able to be like yeah, we always lose, rather than it ruin my weekend, which I think when you're in it, you know, like you live in this city where your team is, you're so immersed, it's difficult to like emotionally distance yourself from a result. Like a good day means you have, a win means you have a great day, a loss means you don't want to talk to anyone, people are getting you stick about it on WhatsApp and it really hurts you, yeah. you text back something nasty. I'm now sort of able to accept that my teams often lose. <laughs> yeah, well, the Achilles and I have had to accept that, haven't we, as well, right. mate? Yeah, it's been a long, long road. I I fortunately seen a grand final win because mm. I was born a, a in 1950. <laughs> but yeah, it's it, it's sort of a roller coaster ride for us, mm. you know. But yeah, you got to take the highs and lows. And I'd said on this show earlier this year that uh, Parramatta will win it next year, so I'm sticking by my guns. <laughs> so what's what's a good result for the Parramatta Eels? Like what what would you be happy with as a league standing? Grand final win. Yeah, okay. <laughs> We would. So we've, uh, since I've supported them, I've seen uh, two grand final losses and preliminaries, obviously, the <laughs> final before. I think eight we've lost. Okay. I'm pretty sure. So we are notorious for doing well and then just, yeah, falling so apart. one of the best teams jokers. in the country, but you don't win. Basically, okay. we, we can have dips like we didn't make the finals this year, but basically, yeah, we'll have about two, three years where we come first. So we win the minor premiership. So in, Euro yeah. in Europe or uh, Premier League, obviously, mm -hmm. that's it. You've mm -hmm. won it. But yeah, for us, it's... It's the final hurdle. Yeah. It's like literally choking. Yeah. yeah. Probably, that stings the most, right? You beat yeah. the best team over the course of the season, but you don't win anything. Yeah. yeah. I and I think too, like when we watch the game... Um, we make fundamental errors that we never make throughout the season. Mm. And it's just that final hurdle. We just had to get it right. And it's, I mean, coming as a parent, I'm just speaking as a Parramatta fan, it's just so frustrating because you see those errors or you see those plays and it's like, where was that during the mm. year? Like, mm. what, why are you doing that now? You know? yeah. So, yeah, very frustrating. I don't want to end this podcast on a depressing <laughs> note, mate, but we might have to on the Parramatta Eels. Uh, Hamish, we've absolutely loved having you on, mate. Um, I, I've loved, obviously, even our cricket chat. We've never discussed cricket on this podcast, but I, I, it was amazing. If you're ever in Sydney again, we'd love to have you on. And also, mate, do you want to give a plug to your podcast and any socials you have yes, before we go? Because I always forget to do this. <laughs> yes. So go, you mate. Our website is SoberAwkward.com. Our Instagram is SoberAwkward. 
awkward. The podcast is sober awkward. It's basically awkward sober, sober awkward. awkward. My, my co-host, Vicky Vanstone, has got a book coming out in January, which is called A Thousand Wasted Sundays. Awesome. So yeah, that'll be available nice. all of the places you get books. Check it out. All good. Thank you, mate. Thank you, mate. We've Thank taken you. a load off for this week.